Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Our Deep Understanding of Dogs' Needs, by Alison Gottnick. Then an article by Robert Fromer, How FBI Took an Innocent Woman's Savings. Then author Laffer and Stephen Moore have an article, The Hotel California Wealth Tax. And then Fed Remodel Keeps Inflating by Andrew Ackerman and Nick Timirius. And we'll follow that up with an article by Rich Cohn, Paco Rabane, and the Fragrant Male Makeovers of My Teens. So let's begin with today's first article, Our Deep Understanding of Dogs' Needs. Seventeen years ago, my son adopted a scrappy, noisy, bouncy, charming, young street dog and named him Gretzky, after the great hockey player. Five years later, my grandson Augie was born. Two remarkable things happened next. Gretzky transformed into a serene guardian of the new baby, sitting quietly curled up next to him, and he became the baby's favorite companion. Almost as soon as he could walk, Augie loved wrestling with what was, objectively, a sharp-toothed carnivore twice his size. When Gretzky died last October, Augie was heartbroken. This might seem like a banal story of a boy and his dog, but if you think about it biologically, it is extraordinary. What would turn the descendants of a wolf and a great ape into best friends? Humans have a distinctive relationship with other animals. We trade off human care for a horse's speed, a cow's milk, or even a canary's song, and the domestication of animals was one of the keys to human success. Dogs are the most ancient example. Wolves evolved to become human companions some 30,000 years ago. But how could this special relationship develop? A new study from Rachel Retta at Duke University, Henry Wellman at the University of Michigan, and their colleagues suggests that the special link between people and dogs run deep. Even toddlers spontaneously treat dogs like people, figuring out what they want and helping them to get it. The researchers cleverly adopted a famous study by Felix Warnikin. Dr. Warnikin showed 18-month-olds an adult trying but failing to do something, like getting a pencil that was out of reach. Toddlers spontaneously went out of their way to help but only when it was clear that the adult wanted the pencil. Cooperation, altruism, and theory of mind, the ability to understand what other people want, are also distinctively human abilities, and they are in place very early. But they do they only apply to people or to other animals, too? Dr. Reddy and her colleagues enlisted the help of three canine experimenters, kid-friendly small dogs. The researchers showed nearly 100 two- to three-year-olds the dogs in an enclosure with a platform that was just out of reach. There was a treat on the platform, 
and the dogs naturally turned to the children and strained, strained toward the treat, gazing at the kids with those notorious puppy dog eyes. The toddler spontaneously got the treat off the platform and gave it to the dogs or asked a grown-up to do it for them. Toddlers who had pet dogs at home helped the dogs out on 60% of the trials, but even toddlers without pets helped 40% of the time. The children helped more when the dogs were more engaged with them and were more enthusiastic about getting the treat. The researchers turned this into a systemic feature of the next experiment. Now they used two dog toys, one that was scented with a meaty aroma that was irresistible to the dogs but invisible to the kids, and one that wasn't. The dogs naturally showed more interest in the meaty toy. As a result, the toddlers were much more likely to hand the dog that toy that the, that toy than the less attractive one. So the toddlers were not just only trying to help, they were sensitive to what the dogs wanted. The study suggests that humans succeeded in domesticating dogs because they spontaneously extended their abilities for cooperation and care to other animals. But this was a two-way street. Dogs became adept at using signals that even very young children could understand. Puppies and babies are an irresistibly adorable combination, of course. But it's nice to think that the love between Gretzky and Augie is more than just cute. It played a crucial role in human history. And now, how the FBI took an innocent woman's savings. The Federal Bureau of Investigation regularly seizes cash, cars, and other valuables that belong to people who aren't accused of any crimes. Months later, many of those people receive a dense boilerplate notice stating that the FBI plans to keep their property forever, without any explanation of why, a blatantly unconstitutional practice. That's what happened to Linda Martin. When the FBI took her life savings from a safe deposit box during a 2021 raid of United States private vaults in Beverly Hills, California, she assumed her money would be returned. The company's alleged wrongdoing had nothing to do with her. But several months later, she and hundreds of other innocent people who had their safe deposit boxes taken received a notice stating that the government wanted to forfeit her money. The notice dense legalese pointed to the Bureau's statutory for forfeiting her property, including such wide-ranging laws as the Tariff Act of 1930, espionage laws and rules against business dealings with North Korea. But it didn't accuse Ms. Martin of any crime or even lay out why the FBI was trying to take her property. Confused, Ms. Martin took the first option the notice laid out, filing a petition with the FBI. She later discovered, however, that doing so conceded her property's forfeiture, leaving it to the Bureau to decide if it would give back her life savings as a matter of administrative grace. Almost two years later, her money still sits in a government account with no indication of whether it will be returned. Sadly, this isn't unusual. 
the FBI sends out similarly inscrutable notices whenever it wants to forfeit property in a clear violation of the Fifth Amendment, which says the government has to provide due process before depriving you of your property. That means saying what it thinks you did wrong, not stringing together legal gibberish. The FBI has apt incentive to stretch the law to breaking, given that federal agencies keep the proceeds from forfeited property. In the United States private vaults case, the FBI admitted under oath that even before the raid occurred, it had decided to pursue property forfeiture against everything worth over $5,000 in the renter's boxes. Using federal forfeiture records, the Institute for Justice calculated that from 2017 to 2021, Justice Department agencies gained more than $8 billion through forfeiture, with the FBI taking in more than $1.19 billion of that bounty. The courts have already denounced the Bureau's practices. In an earlier lawsuit we brought regarding the United States private vaults raid, a federal judge declared the FBI's notices anemic and immediately halted forfeiture proceedings for our clients. Unfortunately, that ruling applied only to the named plaintiffs in that suit. Ms. Martin and hundreds of others didn't receive the same relief. So recently, she filed a new class action lawsuit in the District of Columbia seeking to help anyone nationwide who received one of the FBI's deficient notices. Courts must demand justice by preventing agencies from forfeiting property without informing owners of what they did wrong. Only then will the Constitution's demand for due process be satisfied. And now the article by author Loeffler and Stephen Moore, The Hotel California Wealth Tax. Lawmakers in California, Illinois, New York, and Washington State have proposed new taxes on wealth and higher income taxes for the rich are on the table in Connecticut, Maryland, and Massachusetts. Residents of these seven blue states are already among the highest tax. The states are also in financial trouble. California and New York impose income tax rates that can exceed 13%, but their budget deficits are mounting. Lawyers in Sacramento and Albany think the answer is to soak the rich even more. Yet Florida, Tennessee, and Texas oppose no state income tax and all have sturdy surpluses. Their coffers are so full, they're looking to cut taxes. How is that possible? One reason is that low-tax red states are importing capital and wealth from the high-tax blue states. For more than three decades, we have examined state-by-state financial and demographic data collected by the Internal Revenue Service and the Census Bureau. The latest numbers make clear this trend is accelerating. In the past 10 years, six of the seven high-tax blue states have had a net loss of population to other states, totaling nearly 5 million residents. Washington, which has no income tax, has gained over the decade. They've also lost almost a quarter trillion dollars in cumulative taxable income. California, $50 billion. Connecticut, $14 billion. Illinois, $47 billion. 
Maryland 14 billion, Massachusetts 13, New Jersey 26, and New York 79 billion. That's only the money on personal income tax returns. It doesn't count lost revenue from corporate profits or sales. Lawmakers desperately are seeking ways to offset the financial effects of flight. California Assemblyman Alex Lee's proposed wealth tax, perhaps inspired by the Eagles Hotel California, would apply even after the taxpayer leaves California. But even assuming this is constitutional, if tech entrepreneurs discover California taxes are inescapable, they'll go to Austin, Salt Lake City, Nashville, and other booming high-tech corridors in the first place. <coughs> Excuse me. West Palm Beach, Florida advertises itself as Silicon Valley South. Washington State Senator Noel Frame, meanwhile, suggests that states can avoid the revenue loss by setting up a high-tax cartel. Let's make sure if they move, they have nowhere else to go because we're all taxing them together. But people who leave California to escape high taxes go to Florida or Texas, not Washington or New York. Taxes aren't the only reason people move. Schools, weather, jobs, culture, crime, and the cost of living all matter. But taxes are a factor, and one that drives some of the others. Rather than doubling down on the highest taxes in the land and conjuring up new ways to soak the rich, wouldn't it be wiser for the highest tax states to start imitating the winners? And the Fed remodel keeps inflating. Anyone with a recent home renovation project that suffered from rising costs, shortages, and delays now has distinguished company. The Federal Reserve, the United States institution charged with controlling inflation, is also struggling to hold down expenses on its stately digs. The central bank is in the middle of a long-running project to overhaul three adjacent office buildings overlooking the National Mall into a state-of-the-art campus. The price tag for the endeavor has swelled to nearly $2.5 billion, up from an estimate of $1.9 billion in 2019, an increase of about 34%. Budget documents released at the end of last year show the cost of the overall project has inflated due to significant increases in the cost of steel, cement, wood, and other materials that far exceed standard cost escalations. Most of the overruns are for gutting and refurbishing two buildings, the Fed's headquarters, finished in 1937 and named for then-Chairman Mariner S. Eccles, and a neighboring building known as FRB East for now. The Fed acquired that building, which opened in 1933, from the Interior Department five years ago. Renovations on both are expected to run until 2027. Until then, the Fed's senior brass has decamped for a third building that overlooks its headquarters from the north, the William McChenzie Martin Jr. Building. It originally opened in 1974 and reopened at the end of 2021 
after a top-to-bottom refurbishing that includes bathroom door sensors for touchless opening and a pair of hives of Italian honeybees on the roof. Fed officials say their aim is to bring the majority of the board's staff to offices that are closer together and to reduce the central bank's leased space in downtown Washington. The end, result will serve, the end result will serve most of the 3,000 economists, lawyers, and professionals who support the central bank's seven-member board of governors, who set interest rates to manage economic growth, and who oversee the nation's financial system. The massive construction project has largely flown under the radar. In, unusual in a city where regulators sometimes encounter stiff congressional protests over such facelifts. Last decade, Republican lawmakers pillarized the $145 million retrofit of brutalistic-style offices that housed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau near the White House. The Fed has been here before. Amid rising inflation in 1969, it delayed plans to construct what eventually became the Martin Building, then at an estimated cost of more than $30 million, and asked other regional banks across the country to consider doing their part to combat high prices by deferring planned construction activity. This has been done to minimize competition for scarce goods and services during the current inflationary period, the Fed said at that time. The New York Fed's plans to construct a new building in Lower Manhattan in the 1920s ballooned to more than $25 million, far above an initial $10 million estimate. One banking regulator lamented in the New York Times at the time that the luxurious and lavish appointments of marble and brass would make Solomon's Temple of Old seemed quite cheap in comparison. This time around, costs also have gone up because of design changes demanded by planning officials. While the Fed can move trillions with the click of a mouse, erecting a building in the District of Columbia is a different matter. We've got a built-up country and it's hard to get zoning, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said last November. While he was addressing a source of higher home building costs, he might just as well have been talking about the project in his own backyard. The National Capital Planning Commission and the United States Commission of Fine Arts, century old government agencies that review building proposals for federal property in the region, signed off on the Fed's renovations only after the central bank toned down certain design flourishes particularly to the FRB East Building. Members of the Fine Arts Commission, for example, criticized in 2020 the proposed addition of a five-story, brightly glowing glass box on FRB East, saying it would look unsightly at night and clash with an older, more modern, modest Depression-era building. The Fed agreed to reduce the height and to add a pattern of semi-opaque glass panels to make the addition more compatible with the original building. To make up for some of the lost space, the new plans have more square footage below ground level, which the Fed sent, sent up the price tag. The Equus building was designed by French-born Philadelphia artist 
Paul Felipe Cret after legislation backed by President Franklin D. Roosevelt moved the central bank out of the Treasury Department. Its boardroom, which features 26-foot-high ceilings, briefly hosted United States and British military advisors during World War II because it was one of the largest air-conditioned rooms in the city. Over time, the building had become rundown, say current and former staffers and policymakers. They describe leaky ceilings, antiquated electrical systems, and inefficient heating and cooling systems. The recently completed renovations on the Martin Building were plagued by delays. In 2015, the Fed sacked the initial architectural and engineering firm hired for the job over what an internal watchdog described as shoddy work. Costs went up when workers had to remove more asbestos than anticipated. The new building boasts lugs amenities. The boardroom where the Fed's rate-setting committee meets has a special tap with still sparkling or chilled water, and the basement holds artwork from the Fed's private collection and other works on loan, including by Andy Warhol and Alexander Caldwell. And now Rich Cohn's Paco Rabanne and the Fragrant Male Makeover of My Teens. Some might quarrel with calling the 1980s the golden era of teenage cologne wearing, but that's how it seemed to me. For some reason, that decade, with its liberal use of hair mousse and hair gel too, was a time of male grooming and male makeovering that turned even the least vain of us into dandies. Those days came back to me like a sense memory last month with the death of Paco Rabanne, who, between December 1986 and August 1988, known to my Chicago friends as the time Rich was dating the girl from Highland Park, determined the powerful musk that preceded me into every room. Finding out that Rabane, who seemed as atmospheric as an electrical storm, had been a human being who actually walked the earth came as a shock. To me, he was less a fashion designer than a memory keeper, our sense of smell being the storehouse of the past. When I was a kid, I would go through my parents' bathroom cabinet, mixing together every fragrant thing. I'm not sure why I did this, but I know what I wanted, bubbles and smoke. The first cologne, created in Cologne, Germany, was made in a similar process. In describing the elixir, which contained lemon, orange, tangerine, clementine, lavender, rosemary, oregano, jasmine, and tobacco, Marina said the fragrance reminded him of an Italian spring morning of mountain daffodils and orange blossoms after the rain. He sent samples of his concoction to royals across Europe in the way marketers now send the project to social media influencers, hoping they'll spread the the word. As in drug dealing, the free taste is the key to good salesmanship. From that moment, a man's scent belonged first to perfumers, then to women influenced by ad copy. If Paco Rabanne was an essentially great maker of cologne, perhaps it is because of his biography, which gave him an acute appreciation for smells from times gone by, 
such as camel hair, goat leather, and sawdust. Rabani was born in the Basque country in 1934. His father, a colonel in the Spanish Republican Army, was killed during the Spanish Civil War, and he believed he'd been reincarnated not once but many times, spending the reign of Louis XV as a courtesan in France. Who better than a 500-year-old sex worker to know what will appeal to a girl from Highland Park? He studied architecture in the 1950s, then drifted into fashion, setting down his principles in a document straight out of the Ben Stiller movie Zoolander, Manifesto, 12 Unwearable Dresses in Contemporary Material. Cologne came into most of our lives not as a result of advertisements, though the Cologne commercial was ubiquitous in the 1980s, but at the insistence of a high school sweetheart who saw us less as a potential prom date or a fellow student in the School of Life than as a project, a teardown or a fixer-upper. That is why, though we started high school in high tops and hoodies and smelling like perp, we exited with spiked hair in polo shirts and bucks and smelling like Paco Rabani. After the breakup, and it always came, we were less fragrant but much wiser. We had learned to accept our God-given stink and to distrust anyone who wanted to send us into the night reeking like an American gigolo. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.